Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. We're joined again by Majid Jabrailov. Hey, Majid, how you doing? Uh, I'm fine. How about about you? Good, good, good. Uh, So much to talk about. SwiftUI is such a dense topic. I can't believe it's been a year since they introduced it. And we had uh, Jason Anderson on talking about reactive functional programming and how radical this was. But it's it's been so welcomed by the community. I, I feel like it's it's a good indication of how much something like this has been desired for a while. Because it was it's the same thing with like Swift, right? When Swift came out, it's like people like Objective C. It's not horrible, but a lot of developers just found it quite janky, actually. And then when Swift came out, it was just so quickly adopted by folks and, and really, really liked. And, and I feel like that's the same way with Swift UI. Were your like overall expectations met with this year's WWDC? Yeah, actually, a lot of new things. Actually, all the gaps filled. I think uh, all the gaps are, are filled, I think, but there's still some problems with navigation, but we'll cover it later. Yeah. Well, we talked about navigation in the last episode. The one I wanted to talk about today is all the new property wrappers that um, we have now in SwiftUI. Um, Of course, there's the main attribute, which we talked about in the last episode, but now we have things like state object and a few other ones. Could you kind of go over the new ones and how useful they are for developers? Yeah, we have a few actually new property wrappers to manage data flow in SwiftUI. So uh, we have big concerns about observed object. Uh, this is the old one, which we use to uh, handle external data. So Apple give us uh, state like and binding that we have to use when we want to use for view local states like animations, uh, highlighting, filtering, stuff like that. And for data flow, actually, like uh, your business logic, something that lives on your backend or core data, we use observed object. But we have to uh, manage its life cycle on our hands. So it means uh, if you create the observed object inside a view, like during the view life cycle, you will lose all the data during the SwiftUI uh, view updates. And Apple says that you have to manage it yourself, I mean, life cycle, and you have to store it outside of SwiftUI framework, like in AppDelegate maybe, or in SynDelegate. So which property wrapper is this? Observed object. Okay. This year, Apple released a state object. So state object allows us to use observable objects inside SwiftUI uh, lifecycle. So SwiftUI will take care of it. Uh, it will create it and store it outside of the view, but it will uh, survive all the view updates. So we was waiting uh, for this property wrapper all the year because it's it was really hard to use observed object in some cases where you have just lost your data. So let me just give you more information about state object. Uh, state object, when you mark some observable object uh, with at state object, CVTI will take, take care of it. So it will create it and handle it and store it 
in special framework memory outside of the view. So if you recreate your view, it does not uh, lose all the data that you stored in your observable object. So usually we are going to use it for our view models that uh, that fetch some data from backend or some uh, stuff like stuff like should be uh, alive all the during all the app life cycle. We can store it in the app protocol. Okay. So what are some of the other property wrappers you'd use on an observable object? Like I'm a big user of environment object in a lot of my apps and I'm not sure that's necessarily the best way to do it, but then at the same time, it is essentially like kind of used as a singleton, correct? Uh, yeah. I also use an environment object a lot. I, I like the way that we uh, can inject uh, the observ observable objects into the view hierarchy. Exactly, the view hierarchy. Because it goes, it carries on yeah. to all the children. Yes, yes. And we don't need to pass it to every child. If you have pretty big view hierarchy, it's really uh, creates a lot of boilerplate to pass it to every view. Yeah, this is actually the ways that I use to make a dependency injection into some sort of uh, feature or model of my app. If you want your app to succeed, there's never been a better time to read up on App Store optimization. And App Figures provides that just for you. As I've mentioned before, they have all these great articles and guides on App Store optimization, and you can check them out and help improve your ASO. Lately, they've also started doing teardowns of specific apps like Spotify, for instance, and show exactly how they're utilizing ASO to get the best possible download results. You can take a look at their resources page at appfigures.com resources. You can also take a look at the link in our show notes below. Try App Figures for free, and if you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months and increase your download numbers. Again, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you, App Figures, for sponsoring our show. So we're talking a lot about these property wrappers and how we hook them up to different views using, using these observable objects. What are some patterns and practices that you've adopted over the last year to help you build your app and keep it maintainable and testable? Yeah. So basically, I try to build my uh, data flow as single state container because it el eliminates a lot of bugs. Uh, maybe you maybe similar you know the about Redux store like very popular on the front end and JavaScript world. It's basically something similar. So you have all the state in one container and all the app derived from that state. When you change anything there, all the app rebuild it, I mean, in terms of changed parts, and you have uh, up-to-dated up app every time. You don't have something that should be invalidated because of some part of the state uh, invalidated. All the app is up-to-dated to your uh, latest state. Yeah, I really like that. Like one of the things is just like the real challenge, honestly, and this is a talk I'm actually in blog post I'm working on, but like one of the, one of the things is being able to take like the older APIs and migrate those to uh, one thing we haven't even mentioned yet, but like the elephant in the room with all this stuff is combined, right? Uh, yeah. And being able to like create publishers 
from older APIs. Um, that's a blog post I'm working on right now. Uh, and just being able to get those hooked up to your observable object, whatever that may be, and then updating your view is just, that's the easy part. It's the challenge is getting like your core location or your Bluetooth or whatever it is to actually work with combine. And once you get that part, like it's not that hard to get your views updated easily. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I uh, put all the, all the state of my app into some store container, which is uh, observable object. And I use it, uh, I use at state, at state object. Uh, to hold it inside my app protocol. So this is something that is global for all my app. This is something that stores all the logic, all the state of my app, and I share it inside a app protocol. Then I use, for example, uh, I divide my app into, into the features or modules. For example, every tab of my tab bar is a different module. And every every uh, this view have environment object. This is where I uh, divide my global store into some parts and share it between every tab. So one tab gets, for example, part A. Second tab get the part B, and third tab get part C. And all of them is passed by environment object. So use add state in your app protocol. It sounds like is that correct? At state object, I mean new one. Oh, oh, the new one. Okay, got you. And then, so are you using environment object as well, or do you feel like you don't need to use environment object with a new API? No, I use uh, both of them because state object stores uh, the global state of my app, and then I uh, divide the global state into different parts and path them via environment environment object. Got you. Okay. Wow. Very cool. I got. I'll definitely be checking that out because um yeah i think that's a really interesting way of doing this and this is with like the at main attribute correct uh yes so i i wrote actually a series of posts about that approach that i think we can share it yeah definitely we'll be putting that in the show notes as well so we talked a lot about like storing the state of your app how does this work with some of the new stuff with app storage and scene storage yeah so actually Apps new, yeah. There is also new property wrappers like app storage and scene storage. Also scaled metric uh, that SwiftUI gave us. But yeah, I actually have own uh, my own implementation of app storage because it's really crucial to have property wrapper like that to store your data in user defaults. Yeah. So uh, app storage actually the property wrapper that allows you to store something. In user defaults, it w- works very well for your setting screen, for example, when you have some toggles to store, yeah, for settings. So, is this like I, I've seen like the boilerplate code, and maybe you've had this in your blog where you can there's a user defaults um, property wrapper? Is it similar to that essentially, but just specifically for app storage? Yeah, actually, this is same as uh, property wrappers that. Uh, reads the data from user defaults, but yeah. there is another great addition to this app storage property wrapper. It conforms to dynamic property protocol, okay. which is uh, introduced by SwiftUI, and uh, it means that this property wrapper can update 
the view when the content of this property wrapper changed. For example, if you have uh, if you have a setting screen that uses app storage, for example, to for toggle some booleans anywhere in the app where you also use that app storage. As soon as you change the uh, values in your settings screen, app will be CTI will recreate the views that uses uh, this app storage property wrapper to update your views. Okay, very cool. So how is that different from scene storage then? Yeah, so app storage and scene storage is pretty similar property wrappers, but uh, the app storage store the data inside user defaults. Scene storage uh, handle the data inside per scene storage. So this per scene storage created by the system, controlled by the system, and every scene have its own its own memory called scene storage. So uh, it's pretty good to use stuff like tab selection or maybe a selected index of the current book in your reading app, stuff like that. That's not so crucial to store in your database, but it's okay to uh, store and restore it before scene destroy stuff like that. So this is basically, we use scene storage for state restoration in scenes. So, but it's only temporarily, right? If it's only stored in memory. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And now scenes are specifically tied to like the idea of if you have like multiple windows in an app, is that correct? Okay. I still haven't wrapped my head. It's been a year. I haven't wrapped my head around scenes because I don't have to because I don't build anything that's multi-window yet. So, but speaking of which, one thing I wanted to talk about I know you don't do a lot of Mac dev, but the now support Swift UI with document-based apps, yeah. which is pretty awesome. I want to I want to really dabble into that with my app uh, Speculate, where you can build icons out of SVG files. I, I'm starting to look at building an actual UI for it on the Mac. I think we talked about before the show. I'm trying to like build a replica of the iPhone home screen in Swift UI. Uh, we're using grids. Now we got these brand new grids and uh, I'm really happy about that. Cause like NS document is like, I have not, I never was able to wrap my head around it. And it's nice to see that being migrated over to Swift UI, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have new d- document groups in, which works also on iOS. So we can. Right, iPad, can, of course. Yes. Yeah. iPad, iOS and the macOS. It's, uh, it works everywhere. So you can, it's uh, have give you a predefined flow to open, save documents uh, on your disk, on your iCloud, or in terms of Mac, the local stuff. Yeah, it's have a lot of logic for window managing that you don't uh, need to handle you on your own. What have you thought about the improvements to uh, Xcode, like the SwiftUI previews in Xcode 12? Do you feel like they've been big improvements, small improvements? Have you, have you, what have you found as far as previews are concerned? Yeah, so actually, uh, Xcode previews is one of my favorite features of Xcode. Or my favorite feature of Swift UI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you can use Xcode previews uh, with UI kit also. You can wrap the UI view controllers into Swift UI and use them to preview controllers also. Oh, nice. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. So I use them a lot. I actually, uh, Previews just replaced the simulator for me. I don't use 
similar to two match as before. I just uh, take a look at the everything in my previous. I try to model uh, to structure my views to fit the mock data and take a look at it in previews. Yeah, I'm really happy to see that uh, this year we can also build complications in Xcode previews, and we can wow. also uh, take a look at uh, widgets in the previews. So you don't need to run it on the on your device or the simulator. Yeah, I I dabbled a bit into like today extensions and it always felt like just a pain in the neck to have to like test and build and stuff like that. And like I'm really happy to see how widgets are going to work now that they're completely SwiftUI based. Uh it's going to be a lot easier. So SwiftUI is not perfect. Yeah. Big surprise, there are a few bugs when you are developing an app in SwiftUI. What are some of the bugs that you've run into and some of the workarounds you've found uh, in order to get around them? Yeah, there are a bunch of bugs that it's really uh, not documented very well that we, and fixes is really looks like a magic. (laughs) So first, first of all, it's text component, text view that sometimes it's 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 hard to render multi-line text just not working yeah and you have to add a fixed size modifier to it so for, at the first time when i saw it 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 was like a magic because i didn't understand how the fixed size works and how it uh, allows the text to be multi-line because uh, there is a special modifier on the text that line limit and you can give it nil and it should be multi-lined every time when you have real long text. But it doesn't work as easy <laughs> as it sounds. Yeah, and sometimes you have to add stuff like fixed size or layout priority. Are you putting this stuff inside like a geometry reader in order to keep it dynamic, or you're just setting the fixed size? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, you have... Actually, you can fix the issue only by adding fixed size modifier. It should work. Oh, got you. Oh, I, I know what you mean with the empty uh, par- parameter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you played around with the new text editor at all? Um, I just tried to build a document-based app for iOS that uh, is Markdown editor. I just I played a little bit with it, and it's not so powerful like UI text view in UI kit. But uh, I felt some feedbacks to Apple about the text editor that we have to use something like uh, NS attributed uh, string to colorize. Or- yeah, right. I've run into a few situations where I've used, um, I think it was a UI text view and wrapped it in Swift UI because of the fact that like I was getting rich text that I needed to display in Swift UI and I had to use, I had to use NS attribute string. There's just no way to get around it. And like, luckily we do have some stuff with UI view representable and UI view controller representable and things like that. So like there is, there is a lot of, they, they created a decent bridge, I guess, between some of the old stuff and the new stuff last year. So it's not a big burden, uh, but still there are some issues. Yeah. But uh, I believe that text will gain more power over uh, text editor. I try to feel as much feedback as I can. <laughs> to, make to use native CFTI without representable types. Right. Yeah. So, like, as far as the text editor, it's completely unformatted, right? Like, there is, you can't do any sort of formatting whatsoever. Yeah. It, it, it is like text field uh, right now. 
just multi-line and text field without any formatting and yeah like or text area and html like you really yeah. like unless you bring in a javascript library you're pretty much limited to what you can do any other bugs you wanted to mention in swift ui uh in the first version we actually have some problems with the list when you have a really huge list with thousands of items and the diffing process was take maybe 15 minutes when you wow. change the data and animations doesn't work there. Yeah, so most of them is fixed right now. Uh, in the current version of Swift UI, most of these bugs is fixed. And we can actually uh, turn on or turn off the animation, default animation of list by adding or removing animation uh, modifier to the list. In the previous version, it doesn't affect any. Uh, behaviors in the component. You recently had a blog post uh, about the animatable um, animatable values in SwiftUI, right? Yeah. What are some pitfalls with, or what are some things that you think people should be taking advantage of when it comes to creating animations or overusing animations in SwiftUI? Uh, I believe that animations is one of the powerful things uh, in Swift UI, so you don't need to do anything. Yeah, it's really complicated to handle all the animations in UI kit because in Swift UI you have to just have the sum data, then change data, and add the animation modifier. Swift UI will take all the responsibility to manage your animation and understand how the data change and which values should be animated. It's, it works sort of like a magic. Yeah, it is pretty awesome to see it when it, when it is working. I'll definitely be linking to your blog post on that because I think it's something people should definitely check out. Was there anything... So it sounds like you can disable animations. Anything else new this year as far as animations are concerned? Uh, yeah, we also, we also have the match geometry uh, modifier on SwiftUI that allows us to easily create hero hero animations uh, in Swift UI. I mean, when the one view uh, transform into another by using animations. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and you don't need to do anything for it. You have you just mark one view with ID and mark uh, another view with the same ID, and Swift UI will take care of all the transformation from one view to another. Hello, everyone. I wanted to let you know about this year's 360 iDev. It's running this year from August 16th to the 19th. I spoke last year at this conference, and I'll be speaking again. And it has a great collection of speakers, uh, folks you probably know from the show, like Joe Chaplinsky, Steve Lipton, Ariel Michelli, and more. 360 iDev is the premier iOS, Mac, Swift developer conference. Not only does it have a great collection of speakers, but it's a great opportunity to meet some folks online who you can connect with. For listeners of the show, you can get 20% off by using the promo code WEARESWIFT. Again, simply go to 360iDev and use the promo code WEARESWIFT to get 20% off. This is a fantastic conference with a great collection of speakers and topics. I highly recommend you check this out. So one of the biggest views in SwiftUI are lists and for each. What are some features or bugs that people uh, might run into or should be taken advantage of when it comes to those views? 
Yeah. So list. Yeah. In the first version of Swift UI, list was one of the biggest view <laughs> in in the framework, and there are a lot of problems in terms of different type of views when you use different type of views in the list. Uh, a lot of problems with the diffing animation when you have thousand thousand of views in the list. But yeah, most of them is are fixed right now. I'm checking all the bugs and feedbacks that I uh, sent to Apple, and I'm really happy to see that a lot of them is fixed now. Yeah, but there is also one thing that we talk about, uh, that list, now we can control the animation. We can uh, turn on or turn off the animation in the list. Yeah, but we can't control the type of animation in the list right now. So okay. you can't you can change the default animation to spring, for example, or uh, linear animation. We can't control it at all. I'm not sure why. Do you think it's purposeful? Like Apple wants to make sure there's a consistent like design to apps. Maybe I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of. I think uh, so. We can disable or turn on the animation by using animation modifier. In all other views, we can change the type of animation, but this, uh, it is not working for list. I think it's not consistent. Apple should make it consistent and we can uh, control the animation of the list. At least I hope so. So that's why I filled another feedback to Apple to see what's going on there under the hood. How many feedbacks have you filled out? Can you tell? Uh, About 60. Oh my God. Good for you. <laughs> Speaking of bugs, how have you been dealing with like errors that happen throughout the app? Um, we had a really great episode with Jeff uh, a couple of months ago talking about dealing with errors, like networking errors, things like that. How do you deal with that in your Swift UI view? Are you just displaying an error message, pop-up, sheet? What? How are you handling those? Yeah, that's a pretty great question. Because error, error for me is another piece of data, like my state of like an array of some properties on uh, on some entities error is the same for me so i try to render errors as useful uh piece of data like using sheets maybe on some alerts if i can retry it so it's nothing uh, it's not something special for me like some unrecoverable state i try to uh, use them as just another piece of data yeah and one of the things that i think new new folks don't realize, especially when it comes to combine, is there is a difference between an error within a publisher and an error result. And once you get over that and being able to realize that, you know, you can have a result that's an error, but not necessarily something that uh, is going to break your app. And it's important to like make that distinguishing feature because then like what I've done, I think in a lot of cases, what I end up doing is just having like, some sort of uh, Z stack where I'll display like the error on top um, just to like a friendly user error so that they know, Hey, you know, we just, we couldn't get a hold of this website or we couldn't call this API call because your networking sucks or whatever. And like putting that on top and giving that higher priority and then like having the actual result in a, in a, in a like a list underneath or something like that. Yeah. I actually build an, uh, extension operator for uh, combined publisher 
to transform my chain into the result where it has the value, yeah, because it's error also and very valuable piece of data. So one of the things I think a lot of people are concerned about is being able to test your apps. What are some ways that you've found to do like unit testing or UI testing with your Swift UI views? Like I have not figured out the best way to do like even unit testing with my Swift UI view. What have you have have you found any workarounds for that or how how do you go about doing it? So uh, as I mentioned before, the uh, architecture of my app is actually the state of my app living outside in some store and. I can easily test that store because it's just it holds the struct, it holds the state, and I can easily assert them. And all the logic in my I don't have any logic in the views. Uh, all the logic lives also in the store, like pure functions, which just manipulate that state. It has input and output. That's it. That's why it's really easy for me to unit test my reducer functions that change the states. Uh, and I can easily assert the output. So this is in terms of uh, unit testing of uh, model layer. It's pretty easy. In terms of UI testing, it's I use the same way that I use in UIKit. It's exit test uh, framework. Well, yeah, I know it's it's it doesn't fit very well in declarative way of building apps in SwiftUI, but this is what we have right now. And I believe that Apple works on something very similar to SwiftUI and the, all the SwiftUI world that we can use to test our views. Because views, as Apple said, just plain structs. And it should be very easy to give them or assert them. Yeah, I th- it sounds like you're doing pretty much the same thing when it comes to unit testing that I've been doing, where I like move all of my logic outside of Swift UI. I just don't like there's nothing to really unit test on a Swift UI view once you've moved logic outside of it. And like I'm not gonna unit test Swift UI itself. If it works, it works, right? So yeah, it yeah. seems like you're on the same page with what I've been doing. Um so you do have issues with like the UI testing in Swift UI, it sounds like. Yeah, it's it works pretty same way as we have in UI kit. So it's all uh baked by accessibility framework. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's okay. Uh I usually try to follow all the best practices and to my app to work with voiceover and to support all the accessibility features. So it's pretty easy for me to also write UI tests because I already have all the accessibility identifiers and uh, all the buttons have proper traits. So it's okay. So I don't think that a really big gap in testing uh, because... you have to move your logic outside of the views, and then you can do proper unit testing. For UI testing, you have XE framework. Yeah, XE test framework is doesn't fit very well with UI world, but I hope, I believe that this is something that Apple works right now. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, they're definitely, there was a lot of good stuff actually on testing this year. Uh, that I was impressed with. Um, so I, it's nice to see that testing is more and more in their wheelhouse um, and more of a concern that they have and like continuous integration, all that stuff. So I'm really happy to see that. So as far as testing, the only other thing I can think of is the new stuff with StoreKit, right? Yeah. So there is a new uh, actual framework, StoreKit testing framework that allows us to easily 
test uh, our purchases, subscriptions uh, locally without any sandboxing the app or stuff like that. There is also the manager that shows all the subscriptions inside the Xcode. Uh, because really subscriptions and in- testing subscriptions and in-app purchases is really a nightmare for iOS developers right now. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. You, you, are your apps all subscription based, I guess, and you store in, in-app purchases and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. I'm, I'm sorry to look into uh, to that as well. And it, it sounds like there's been some big improvements to SortKit, which is awesome. So I'm glad to see that that's been added this year. So before we close out, I wanted to ask if you have an older app, a legacy app works on like iOS 12, how would you slowly introduce Swift UI into an older app like that? Yeah. Very nice question. Actually, I have a few UI kit apps that I'm uh, try to add some Swift UI code. So basically I start with the settings screen uh, because Swift UI provides us form view, which is uh, one of the, my favorite features about Swift UI that allows us to easily build complex forms like setting screen or some orders, order screen, stuff like that. I usually start by uh, re-implementing my setting screen with Swift UI's form component. This is the first step, I think. Um, and then do you use like preprocessor directives or how do you get around it so you can support older OSs? Or do you just cut off those older OSs at some point? Yeah, I'm trying to cut off uh, the older OSs because I think it's it doesn't work to support uh, Swift UI when you have somebody that uses your app on iOS uh, 11 or, or 12 because you have to make same work two times, right? I'm not sure that I'm going to create the settings screen uh, one time in SwiftUI and second time in the UI right, kit right. Just, to, just to use SwiftUI. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When do you think would be a good time to like just completely, like if you're an older business, when's a good time to maybe completely abandon UI kit essentially and start going all in into SwiftUI then? Do you think it's going to be a couple more years before we can do that? Yeah, I hope that it will be possible in two years. Yeah. So for sure, it will be possible in two years. Yeah, okay, okay. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but actually, uh, most of that will try to build SwiftUI completely, I think, starting next year. Okay. And then do you, are there ways perhaps you can like introduce new features using SwiftUI and like just to say, hey, if you're an iOS 12 or older, you're not going to get that feature because your phone is too old. I mean, that's a possibility too, I guess, is just to exclude certain things in the older devices using SwiftUI. Yeah, I think actually that's okay to make. For example, uh, yeah, my old, my Nabot app uses uh, the iOS 14 and old version of SwiftUI, but I'm going to update it this year to uh, iOS 14 and bring all the new features, but still my users will be able to use old version or if they update the iOS, they can just download new one. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then you're just, you're using on your older UI kit apps, do you just use like a UI hosting controller essentially and that's the way you hook up? Or do you use UI yeah. view representable and go the other route? 
Yeah, actually, there is only a way to use UI hosting controller if you want to integrate SwiftUI into your uh, UI kit app. So there is the only one way to go with UI hosting controller. And then UI view representable is more about like being able to yeah. use your old UI kit views inside SwiftUI, right? Yes, exactly. So you can use uh, UI view representable to, for example, to uh, wrap your map kit uh, map view uh, and use it inside SwiftUI. We now have a map view, right, in SwiftUI, though. Yeah, this year, this yeah. year we have. It, it seems like they moved a lot of those older UI kit stuff over to SwiftUI this year, which is awesome. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you're restricted by that, then yeah, UI view definitely definitely seems like the way to go for some of those older stuff. Yeah, I'm happy to see that Apple uh, add SwiftUI uh, views into into all of the frameworks because I see that AVKit provides AV player view, MapKit provides map view, uh, same for Scene and uh, SpriteKit also. So SwiftUI is totally, I think, is a way of the future development uh, of UI on Apple platforms. Yeah. So I, that's great. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Majid, thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad we could finally do this and a really deep dive into SwiftUI. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a Where can people find you online? Uh, actually, you can find me on uh, my blog, so swiftwithmajid.com. You can also follow and subscribe the SwiftUI weekly newsletter that I am create and deliver every Monday. Yeah, and we'll have links to those in the show notes. Uh, again, thank you so much. Thanks. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit, brightdigit.com or at Bright Digit on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And we look t- forward to talking to you again.